In this lecture, we'll learn about the concept of molar and partial molar quantities. These concepts are indispensable for describing what happens when we have more than one material together, as is very often the case in reality. For example, steel is not just made of iron, but rather it is mostly iron with a little bit of carbon mixed in. The silicon in your computer chips has oxygen mixed in with it at the surface, and Teflon has carbon and fluorine mixed in polymer chains. Cement is a mixture of calcium, silicon, and oxygen, among other stuff. And even a plain old glass of water isn't just H2O. Rather, it has small amounts of calcium, sulfur, iron, among many other elements mixed in. It is the concept of molar, or partial molar, quantities that allows us to describe the thermodynamic variables associated with different components of a material when we have more than one component in the first place. It is also a concept that leads to one of the single most important variables in all of thermodynamics, something called the chemical potential. But first, as in a number of other lectures, let's start off with a few important definitions. Since we'll be talking about what happens when mixing materials together, the first word we should define is the word mixture itself. Perhaps somewhat counterintuitively, we'll define mixture to mean an, a heterogeneous system with multiple components that are not mixed on the molecular scale. A solution, on the other hand, is defined as a homogeneous multi-component system with the components mixed on the molecular scale. So, oil and water isn't a solution. And it only even mixes when I shake it up, forming large droplets of each type of liquid interspersed in the other. Ethanol and water, on the other hand, forms a solution, since, as we'll see in our demo today, they can mix together all the way down to their molecular core. Salt and pepper are two solids that form a mixture when in their usual states. Now, when we have more than one component in a system, we call it a multi-component system. And for an open multi-component system, in addition to the state variables such as pressure, temperature, and volume, each additional component is treated as another variable of the system. This variable is represented in terms of the number of moles of each component. So, for a system with two components, call them component A and component B, we'd have the variables N sub A and N sub B, which correspond to the number of moles of each of those components, respectively. The molar quantity of a given extensive variable is written as that variable with a bar on top, like this. So if I have a property, call it Y, then its molar quantity is equal to Y bar, which equals the variable divided by the number of moles of the component we have. Now, for a single component system, this simply gives the property per mole, as opposed to the total amount. That can sometimes be a convenient way of writing a variable for a single component system. However, as I mentioned, it's when we have more than one component where the idea of molar quantities, and as we'll see, partial molar quantities, really kicks in some value. For the system with two components, A and B, if I want to know the molar quantities of a given property for each of these components, I would divide the variable for that property by the number of moles of the component. 
So for that same variable y, I would have y bar sub a, which is the extensive variable y for the total system. That is, the value of that variable for the full mixture of a and b, divided by the number of moles of a, n sub a. Similarly, I can write the molar quantity for component b. Note that the fraction of the material that has component a is simply n sub a divided by the total number of moles, which is just n sub a plus n sub b. The total fraction of the material that has component b is n sub b divided by the same total number of moles. We like to use the variable x to represent fractions of components and materials. Note that by definition, x sub a plus x sub b has to equal 1. Let's use a simple example to bring these variables and definitions to life. We'll work with the extensive property volume, since it's a nice and easy one to visualize. And by the way, remember that when I say a property is extensive, it means that it scales with the system size. The molar volume, on the other hand, will no longer be an extensive property. Now, I'm dividing the property by the number of moles of the material I have. So, writing a variable like volume in terms of its molar quantity changes it from being an extensive variable into an intensive one. If I double the system size, then the total volume doubles, but the molar volume remains the same, since the number of moles also doubles. Since it does not change with the size of the system, molar volume is an intensive variable. The molar volume of, say, water is 18 centimeters cubed per mole. That means that one mole of water, that is about 6.022 times 10 to the 23rd water molecules, that much water takes up a volume of 18 centimeters cubed. So if I add a mole of water to a beaker filled with water, then the volume of the liquid in the beaker will increase by 18 centimeters cubed. But, as I mentioned, this is not where things get interesting. You see, it turns out that the volume change would have been different if I added the same amount of water to something else. For example, if the beaker had been filled with ethanol instead of water, the volume change upon adding the same one mole of water would have been only 14 centimeters cubed instead of 18. And that's pretty strange. The change in volume from adding something depends on the things I'm adding it to. That's where the concept of partial molar quantities comes in. And this is the perfect time to turn to our demo, where we'll be able to see and hold this concept in our hands. In this demo, we're going to talk about the concept of partial molar quantities, and we're going to bring them to life and show how they work in action with a particular variable, namely volume. So, in this jar, we see that we have filled up to about a third to half the way, it's filled with steel balls. But the question is, is it really filled up to that point? Well, it seems so, but as you can see, if I put smaller balls into there, then they find their way down and they can go in between the bigger balls. And you can see that it's still filled up to the same point as it was before. So then the question is, well, what about now? Is it full now? The answer is no, because now I can add even smaller steel balls and they'll find their way to the spaces in between and trickle down into the open volume that you see. So, is it full yet? 
Is it filled up to that same starting point? Nope, not yet, because now I can add something even smaller. Here I've got sand. How much could I put in? Well, let's pour some in. And you can see that the level of the steel balls that I started with is not changing, but I'm adding something to it. I'm still adding mass and material to the container, okay? So I'm adding sand, adding sand, and the volume does not change. Let's shake it up a little bit, and let it settle, and you can see that the height of this of the steel balls is still exactly the same. So what about now? Can I put anything else into it? Well, the answer is yes. The sand is a small little tiny particle, but it's still pretty big compared to, say, molecules. And it's also a solid. If I go to a liquid, well, then I can really start filling up the remaining space in this container. And you see that if I pour liquid in, then it can settle and go down into the sand and find its way even further into those voids that are still remaining in between the little sand particles. And then we can ask, well, is it full now? The answer, still not quite yet. I can fit another liquid into the water, namely ethanol. Let's take a look. Over here, I have exactly 50 milliliters of water and 50 milliliters of ethanol measured out. Ethanol is on the right and water is on the left. If I mix them together, what happens? Well, let's take a look. First, I'll pour the water into this bigger beaker, and what you can see is that that comes up to a measurement of exactly 50 milliliters, since that's how much I started with. But now, when I add 50 milliliters of ethanol, what you see is that the level that this mixture comes up to, and I pour it all in, is not 100 milliliters. I only get 97 milliliters. That's based on the same exact thing you just saw with the steel balls and the sand, but it's happening at a molecular scale. What's happening is that the ethanol molecules are able to fit inside of some of the open spaces in between the water molecules. And that's why the, the two volumes, when you add them together, is not the same as if you just doubled them each independently. And that is the concept of partial molar volume. So now you have a good sense of the reason we need to be able to quantify the amount of a given property per mole of a component in the system in the context of that component being mixed with others. Pouring sand into a bowl would change the volume by a certain amount with each sand grain. But if I've already filled the bowl with marbles, that amount of change is different. It's effectively zero until we cover all the marbles. The same thing goes at the molecular level, which is why if I add water to ethanol, the volume change is different than if I add water to water. Now, the word I'd like to focus on here is change. As you may have noticed, the most important quantity we want here is the change in volume per mole. And when we want a change in a variable, what we're talking about is a derivative. So that brings us to the formal mathematical definition of a partial molar quantity. For a given component, call it component K, and a given property, call it again property Y, the partial molar value of Y is equal to the partial derivative of Y with respect to the number of moles of component K, 
holding all other variables fixed while the derivative is taken. In terms of notation, that's written like this, where the type of d in the derivative is just means partial, and the list of variables in the subscript are the ones that are held fixed when the derivative is taken. In terms of notation, when we write the partial molar quantity for a variable, we like to put a bar over the variable. The subscript of the variable with a bar on top is the component that this partial molar value is for. Notice also that with this definition, we can define the total value for the variable, obtaining its original extensive value. Namely, it would simply be a sum over all components in the system of the partial molar variable for that component times the number of moles of that component. And just to be sure we can connect this definition to what we just saw in the demo, let's work out the problem of the volume of the ethanol water mixture. Specifically, let's calculate the final volume of the mixture of 50 milliliters of ethanol and 50 milliliters of water. We know the original volume of each component, so what we need to do is to find the partial molar volumes. Assuming constant temperature and pressure, and that the liquids are fully miscible, that is, they don't separate like oil and water, then we can write down the total volume as the sum over the partial molar volume of water times the number of moles of water plus the partial molar volume of ethanol times the number of moles of ethanol. So, we'll need to know the partial molar volume for the water and for the ethanol and we'll need to know how many moles we have of each. First, how do we get the partial molar volumes? Well, it's actually quite easy. We simply look it up. Now, I'm not just saying that lightly. In fact, this is quite an important aspect of thermodynamics. Namely, the fact that very often, important quantities are tabulated, and the way we access them is simply to look them up in a table. For the case of partial molar volumes, thousands and thousands of them have been carefully measured and put into tables and graphs. So, when we mix ethanol and water together, all we need to know is how much of each one we have, and the table will guide us to the values for partial molar volume. And that gets us to the heart of the problem, that is, figuring out how much stuff we actually have of each component in the mixture. I could try to do this by telling you the volume, but that's not good, since the whole point here is that the volume of a substance can change when it's mixed with something else and it depends on the fraction it has within the mixture. Aha! And the key here is that word, fraction. What we need to know in order to know how much stuff we have is the mole fraction of each component. Unlike volume or other variables that can change depending on the mixture, the mole fraction is a direct measure of the mass of each component. It's based on the molecule count, since a mole of anything is always the same number of molecules of that thing. The mole fraction of a component in a mixture is so important in thermodynamics that we're going to be seeing it over and over and over again. It's the basis for how we examine the behavior of mixtures. So back to our water and ethanol. How many moles of each liquid do we have before mixing them together? 50 milliliters of water times the density of water, which is one gram per milliliter, gives us the number of grams. That would be 50 grams. And for water, we've got 18.02 grams for every mole. So the number of moles in 50 milliliters would be equal to 2.77, as you can see here. For ethanol, 
the density is 0.79 grams per milliliter, and so that's 46.08 grams per mole. So 50 milliliters of ethanol corresponds to 0.86 moles of ethanol, as you can see from the math shown here. Now, I pointed out that this was a calculation for the number of moles of each liquid before we mix them. You may be wondering, what about after they're mixed? Well, that's just the thing. It's the same. No chemical reactions occurred to transform one component into something else. So the number of moles of each cannot change when they're mixed. And now that we know how many moles of each one we have, we can compute the mole fraction of each. For ethanol, the mole fraction for which we like to use the variable x is equal to the number of moles of ethanol divided by the total number of moles for both ethanol and water, or 0.86 divided by 2.77 plus 0.86, which gives a number of 0.24. Note that it's a fraction, so this number has no units. So this means that when I mix 50 milliliters of water with 50 milliliters of ethanol, in terms of a count of the number of molecules, the ethanol stands at around 24%. And now we're in a position to look up the partial molar volume, since we know the mole fraction. From the tables, for the water ethanol mixture at a mole fraction of 24% ethanol and 76% water, the partial molar volume of water is 17.5 milliliters per mole, and that of ethanol is 55.6 milliliters per mole. The total volume of the mixture is each of these times their respective number of moles. So that gives the summation you see here, which amounts to about 96 milliliters. In fact, exactly what we measured in the demo. But let's return to this idea of a lookup table. I know that some of you may be thinking, well, that's sort of cheating, isn't it? I mean, you solve the problem by kind of looking up the answer. And that's true to a certain extent. Although, most importantly, what we have is a general framework for dealing with properties of systems with multiple components. In this case, we looked up the property in a table, but as we'll see in other cases, we may rely on a formula or a relationship derived from a model or some physical insight. And you may also wonder how much we really need such tables or equations. What that question really asks is, how much does a property really change upon mixing? The answer to this question is that it depends on what is mixed with what, and in particular, on the nature of the interactions between components. As we'll learn, the two major factors in mixing are the strength of the interactions and the changes in entropy of the system. For now, to give you a sense of why tables are so useful, take a look at the change in partial molar volume on the mole fraction. The x-axis in this graph corresponds to the mole fraction of ethanol. And since it's the mole fraction, it goes from one, 0 to 1. The y-axis is the partial molar volume of water, with its scale shown on the left. Notice how this quantity changes quite a bit as a function of the mole fraction. When the ethanol mole fraction is 0, that means we just have pure water, and the partial molar volume of water is around 18 centimeters cube per mole. This, remember, is what we said the volume of a mole of water is when it's just by itself. As it mixes with the ethanol, this number actually first increases with a peak 
at just under 10% ethanol, after which it decreases non-linearly down to the value of 14, the volume change that occurs when I add water to pure ethanol. So as you can see, the partial molar volume does not remain constant as the composition of the mixture changes. And the behavior is not so straightforward. It's not a simple linear or quadratic function, but rather varies in a complex manner as the materials are mixed together. The mixing can indeed be predicted using sophisticated models, ones that account for the ways in which water and ethanol interact at the molecular level. But a lookup table is also extremely useful for such complicated dependencies. Now, one last point on the math. Since the partial molar volume varies with concentration, our total volume equation should really be written as an integral from zero to the number of moles of one component of the partial molar volume for that component times the different differential number of moles of that component, like this. The total volume would be the sum of such an integral for each component of the system. However, keep in mind that since volume is a state function, the final volume will be the same and this equation valid no matter how the solution was prepared. Okay, so before I move on to discuss another partial molar variable, I'd like to highlight one more point about the partial molar volume. Notice that while the total volume is always a positive value, the partial molar volume does not necessarily have to be. Let's take an example. The compound magnesium sulfate is an inorganic salt found naturally and used in many applications. Some of you may be more familiar with it as Epsom salts used by a lot of folks to take a nice relaxing bath. But did you know that when you add those bath salts to the tub filled with water, the level of that water actually goes down? This is because the partial molar volume of magnesium sulfate when mixed with water at low concentrations is negative negative 1.4 centimeters cubed per mole, to be specific. We can understand this behavior from the fact that when we add salt to water, the salt dissolves into ions. That is, it separates into charged species. The simpler salt we all love to put on our food, sodium chloride, separates into a sodium atom with a positive charge and a chlorine atom with a negative charge. This slightly more complicated salt separates into a magnesium atom with positive charge of plus two, and a sulfate group, SO4, with a negative charge of minus two. The point is that these charged species really like water molecules, and water molecules really like them. So much so, in fact, that the water tends to cluster around them closely and not want to let go. The water likes the salt ions more than it likes itself. And that's why the volume goes down since the clustering to the salts is closer than the normal spacing among water molecules. So, let's go back to our original definition of a partial molar quantity and take a look at it graphically. Here's a plot of the volume of a mixture as a function of the number of moles of some component, while holding all other variables in the system fixed. Our definition of the partial molar volume is simply the slope of this graph. And now you can see that in some cases, the volume goes up when you add more of a given material, while in other cases, the volume goes down, corresponding to either a positive or negative partial molar volume. And now I'd like to spend the rest of this lecture on a different partial molar quantity. 
I used volume as an example in order to walk through what a partial molar quantity is. But as I mentioned, we can look at the partial derivative and therefore partial molar value of any thermodynamic variable. And remember that that variable called the internal energy, the one that forms the basis for the first law of thermodynamics, which I talked about in lecture six, and the one that equals Q plus W or heat plus work, that's the one. So the partial derivative of the internal energy with respect to a given component of a system while holding everything else fixed, that's such an important quantity that we have a special name for it. We don't just call that the partial molar internal energy. No, no, this is so important, it gets its very own name. It's called the chemical potential. Physically, the chemical potential, for which we use the symbol mu, represents the portioning of potential energy attributable to the presence of a particular component in a system. For a material with more than one component, there is a chemical potential associated with each component. So we can think of the chemical potential as a thermodynamic force resisting the addition or removal of molecules to a system. Chemical work is performed to move molecules against this force. And this chemical work occurs because the internal energy of the system changes in response to changes in the composition of the system. So mathematically, the chemical potential is written as seen here. The partial derivative of U with respect to a given component holding all other variables such as entropy, volume, and the number of moles of all other components fixed. Put simply, the chemical potential is a measure of the general tendency of matter to transform. This transformation could be a reaction, or a change in phase, or a redistribution in space. Either way, it is the chemical potential that expresses the likelihood of transformation. If we think about a given transformation, then we can think about the system before the transformation in some initial state, and after the transformation in some final state. Remember that I mentioned there's a chemical potential for each component in the system. That means that the chemical potential for the system is a sum over the chemical potentials of each component in the system. The question we can ask then about a given transformation is the following. Did the total chemical potential increase or decrease as a result of that transformation? If the chemical potential is higher on one side than the other, then the transformation will occur. And here's the key. The transformation will be driven to occur in the direction of high chemical potential to low chemical potential. That's worth repeating. A given transformation will be favorable if the chemical potential is lower in the final state than in the initial state. Think of a seesaw as an analogy. Here, the weight on each side is the only thing that determines which way the seesaw tips. More weight will tip one side down. And equilibrium, that is, when the seesaw is perfectly horizontal, can be reached only when the weights on each side are the same. We can think of the chemical potential as the weight, tipping the balance of a given transformation to either happen or not. More chemical potential on one side of a transformation means that this side will win. Let's use an example of a reaction as our transformation to help illustrate this point. Take a candle, which is made out of paraffin wax. 
This material consists primarily of long hydrocarbon chains, a chemical based on the basic unit CH2. So why does this material burn when I light it on fire? Well, because of the change in chemical potential, of course. When I combine paraffin wax with oxygen, those represent the reactants, or the starting materials for the reaction. The products, or the ending materials, that I get by combusting these starting materials are carbon dioxide and water. Written out as a balanced reaction, we have the following. 3O2 plus 2CH2 goes to 2CO2 plus 2H2O. So, I can look up these chemical potentials, add them up for each side, and I get a value of 8 on the left and minus 1246 on the right. A pretty big difference. That means that the left side wins since it's larger, which means that that side will do the reacting so that the system can lower its chemical potential by going to the right-hand side. Now, I just did a big no-no for this course. I threw some numbers out there without even specifying their units. I hope you caught that and got very concerned. Let's remedy this situation now. As you can see from the definition of the chemical potential, its units are going to be energy per number of moles. The most common units are joules per mole. But we need to know more than just the units. We also need to know how the chemical potential is referenced. That value of 8 for the reactants doesn't mean anything by itself unless, just like for temperature, we have some standard way to reference and measure it. And of course, we do. Standard conditions for the chemical potential are at a temperature of 298 Kelvin and a pressure of 1 atmosphere. For the pure elements, we define the chemical potential to be zero. Here's a table of measured chemical potentials for different materials at standard conditions. Notice that most of the chemical potential values are negative, meaning that they can be produced spontaneously from the elements. This also means that the reverse is true. Most materials do not tend to decompose into their elements, but rather tend to be produced from them. That's a good thing, since it means the materials we deal with in the world, including our own selves, are stable. They don't tend to decompose. On the other hand, if the chemical potential is positive, the material will tend to decompose into its elements, and the material is unstable. But there's a really important point we need to consider here, namely the fact that barriers may exist between transformations. The chemical potential only tells us about the tendency of a given transformation to occur, but it doesn't always mean it will indeed occur. Think about the seesaw example again. What if there was a big rock stuck under one side? Then, even if there were, was more weight on that side, the seesaw would not go down that way. And it's the same with our candle example. If the candle if the chemical potential is lower for the carbon dioxide and water than for the paraffin, wax, and oxygen, then why doesn't the candle simply self-combust? It's because even though it has a tendency to want to do so, to want to go through that very transformation, a barrier inhibits it from occurring. That is, until we supply a little bit of heat by lighting the candle on fire. So 
A drop in the chemical potential is a necessary but not sufficient condition for a transformation to occur. An apple wants to fall from the tree, but it does not when the stem holds it to the branch. Water wants to spill out of a cup, but will not because the walls of the cup prevent it from doing so, and so on. I hope you've gotten a glimpse into the importance of this partial molar quantity. The chemical potential is at the core of understanding so many different thermodynamic processes, from chemical reactions, to the effects of temperature and pressure on a solid or liquid, to the interaction of light with matter, to the way in which materials mix or not, to how mass transports through materials and membranes. That last one being the topic of our next lecture.